Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction and read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. I'm a big magic fan. I mean, I I, I love I love magic. I remember years ago I was sitting in a theater. I went to see Penn and Teller off Broadway in New York, and I, I'm a huge fan. And this was maybe 30 years ago and they were just getting known by the public. And and so they were really a phenomenon. Right. And so I got this ticket and I went and, you know, during the course of the show, they started asking for volunteers. And I was like, Oh no, don't pick me. Normally people would be, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I was like, like, like near the front row. And I just tried to shrink because I did, I, I, I did not want to be picked by Penn and Teller to be, any part of what they were doing on stage. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, there's a, an aspect to their magic. It's a little scary to me because it's, it's so good and weird, you know, um, odd and off-putting sometimes, just like they are. So, I mean, I, I really think that I was n- nervous about taking part because of that feeling of being out of control, right? Because magic can seem to defy logic and the laws of physics. I mean, it challenges our brains and our reality. And I think every person who sees an amazing trick wants to know how it happened. And maybe it's because when someone performs a magic trick, they hold knowledge that they won't reveal to us. And in that knowledge comes power. The audience is actually in a state of powerlessness. In the story I'm going to read today, a young boy is driven by his desire to know how magic works. He wants to know the secrets behind it. He wants to understand how it all comes together so that he can master it. And in the end, he learns the consequences of that desire for knowledge. The Court Magician was written by Sarah Pinsker and first published by Lightspeed Magazine. It appears in Sarah's new collection entitled Lost Places, published by 
Small Beer Press. Now, Sarah is the author of over 50 works of short fiction, two novels, and two collections, and her work has been nominated for or won just about every major short fiction award in science fiction and fantasy. In an interview she did for the original publication of this story, Sarah reminded us that what matters more than knowledge is what you do with it once you've acquired it. I'll leave you with that. Please check out the written content advisory in the episode description if you are so inclined. And now, if you are ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. The Court Magician by Sarah Pinsker. The Boy Who Will Become Court Magician The Boy Who Will Become Court Magician This Time is not a cruel child, not like the last one or the one before her. He never stole money from Blind Carol's cup, or thrashed a smaller child for sweets, or kicked a dog. This boy is a market rat, which sets him apart from the last several, all from high-born or merchant families. This isn't about lineage, or even talent. He watches the street magicians every day with a hunger in his eyes that says he knows he could do what they do. He contemplates the tawdry illusions of the market square with more intensity than most. Until he is marked for us by his own curiosity. Even then... Even when he wanders booth to booth and corner to corner every day for a month, begging to learn, we don't take him. At our behest, the great Greta takes him under her tutelage. She demonstrates the first sleight of hand. If he's disappointed to learn that her tricks aren't magic at all, he hides it well. When he returns to her the next day, it is clear he has practiced through the night. His eyes are marked by dark circles. His step lags. But he can do the trick she taught him. Can do it as smoothly as she can. Though, admittedly, she is not as great as she once was. He learns all her tricks. Then begins to develop his own. He is a smart child, understands intuitively that the trick is not enough, that the illusion is in what is said and what isn't said. The patter, the posture, the distractions with which he draws the mark's attention from what he is actually doing. He gives himself a name for the first time, a magician's name, because 
he sees how that, too, is part of the act. When he leaves Greta to set out on his own, the only space granted to him is near the abattoir, a corner that had long gone unclaimed. Greta's crowd follows him despite the stench and screams. Most of his routine is composed of street illusions, but there is one that seems impossible. He calls it the Sleeper's Lament. It takes me five weeks to figure out what he is doing in the trick. That's when we are sure he is the one. Would you like to learn real magic? I send a palace guard to ask my question, dressed in her own clothes rather than her livery. The boy snorts. There's no such thing. He has unraveled every illusion of every magician in the marketplace. None of them will speak with him because of it. He's been beaten twice on his way to his newly rented room and robbed neither time. He's right to be suspicious. She leans over and whispers the key to the boy's own trick in his ear as I bade her do. As she bends, she lets my old diary fall from her pocket, revealing a glimpse of a trick he has never seen before. A gilded hand. He hands it back to her, and she thanks him for its safe return. By now, he's practiced at hiding his emotions, but I know what's at war within him. He doesn't believe my promise of real magic, but the gilded hand has already captivated him. He's already working it out as he pockets the coins that have accumulated in his dusty cap, places the cap upon his head, and follows her out of the marketplace. The palace? He asks as we all near the servant's gate. I thought you were from the guild. I whisper to my emissary, and she repeats my words. The guild is for magicians who feel the need to compete with each other. The palace trains magicians who feel compelled to compete against themselves. It is perhaps the truest thing I'll ever tell him. He sees only the guard. The young man who will become court magician. Alone, except for the visits of his new tutor, he masters the complex illusions he is shown. He builds the gilded hand in our workshop from only the glimpse I had let him see, then an entire gilded man of his own devising. Still, tricks. I was promised real magic, he complains. You didn't believe in it, his tutor says. Show me something that seems like real magic, then. When he utters those words, when he proves his hunger again, he is rewarded. His hands are bound in the unbreakable knot, and he is left to unbind them. His tutor demonstrates the breath of flowers, the freestanding bridge. He practices those until he figures out the illusions underpinning them. More trickery, he says. Is magic only a trick I haven't figured out yet? 
he has to ask seven times. That is the rule. Only when he is asked for the seventh time, only then is he told. If he is taught the true word, he has no choice but this path. He will not likely return to the streets nor make a life in the theaters entertaining the gentleborn. Does he want this? Others have walked away at this point. They choose the stage, the street, the accolades they will get for performing tricks that are slightly more than tricks. This young man is hungry. The power is more valuable to him than the money or the fame. He stays. There is a word, his tutor tells him, a word that you have the control to utter. It makes problems disappear. Problems? The regent's problems. There is also a price which you will pay personally. May I ask what it is? No. He pauses, considers. Others have refused at this point. He does not. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. And every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire. Michelle Obama, to reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Because stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org healthyliving. Now, let's get back to our story. What is the difference between a court magician and a street or stage magician? A court magician is a person who makes problems disappear. That is what he is taught. There is no way to utter the word in practice. I leave it for him on paper, tell him it is his alone to use now. Remind him again there is a cost. 
he studies the word for long hours, then tears the page into strips and eats them. On the day he agrees to wield the word, the regent touches scepter to shoulder and personally shows him to his new chambers. All of this is yours now, the regent says. The regent's words are careful, but the young court magician doesn't understand why. His new chambers are nicer than any place he has ever been. Later, when he sees how the regent lives, he will understand that his own rooms are not opulent by the standards of those born to luxury. But at this moment, as he touches velvet for the first time, and silk, as he lays his head on his first pillow atop a feather bed, he thinks for a moment that he is lucky. He is not. The Young Man Who Is Court Magician The first time he says the word, he loses a finger. The smallest finger of his left hand loses because it is there and then it is not. No blood, no pain, sleight of hand. His attention had been on the word he was uttering, on the intention behind it and the problem the regent had asked him to erase. The problem, as relayed to him, a woman had taken to chanting names from beyond the castle wall, close enough to be heard through the regent's window. The court magician concentrates only on erasing the chanting from existence, concentrates on silence, on an absence of litany. He closes his eyes and utters the word. When he looks at his left hand again, he is surprised to see it has three fingers and a thumb and smooth skin where the smallest finger should have been as if it had never existed. He marches down to the subterranean room where he'd learned his craft. The tutors are no longer there, so he asks his questions to the walls. Is this to be the cost every time? Is this what you meant? I only have so many fingers. I don't answer. He returns to his chambers disconcerted, perplexed. He replays the moment again and again in his mind, unsure if he had made a mistake in his magic or even if it worked. He doesn't sleep that night, running the fingers of his right hand again and again over his left. The regent is pleased. Court magician has done his job well. The chanting has stopped, the court magician asks, right hand touching left. He instinctively knows not to tell the regent the price he paid. Our sleep was not disturbed last night. The, the woman is gone, the regent shrugs. The problem is gone. The young man mulls this over when he returns to his own chambers. As I said, he had not been a cruel child. He is stricken now, unsure of whether his magic has silenced the woman or erased her entirely. While he had tricks to puzzle over, 
He didn't notice his isolation. But now he does. Who was the woman beyond the wall? He asks the fleeing chambermaid. What were the names she recited? He asks the guards at the servant's gate, who do not answer. When he tries to walk past them, they let him. He makes it only a few feet before he turns around again of his own accord. He roams the palace and its grounds, discovers hidden passageways, apothecaries, libraries. He spends hours pulling books from shelves, but finds nothing to explain his own situation. He discovers a kitchen. Am I a prisoner, then? The cooks and sculleries stare at him stone-faced until he backs out of the room. He sits alone in his chambers, wonders, as all court magicians do after their first act of true magic, if he should run away. I watch him closely as he goes through this motion. I've seen it before. He paces, talks to himself, weeps into his silk pillow. Is this his life now? Is it so wrong to want this? Is the cost worth it? What happened to the woman? And then, as most do, he decides to stay. He likes the silk pillow, the regular meals. The woman was a nuisance. It was her fault for disturbing the regent. She brought it on herself. In this way, he unburdens himself enough to sleep. The Man Who Is Court Magician By the time he has been at court for ten years, the court magician has lost three fingers, two toes, eight teeth, his favorite shoes, all memories of his mother except the knowledge she existed, his cat, and his household maid. He understands now why nobody in the kitchen would utter a word when he approached them fingers are in some ways the worst part. Without them, he struggles to do the sleight-of-hand tricks that pass the time, and to wield the tools that allow him to create new illusions for his own amusement. He tries not to think about the household maid, Tria, with whom he had fallen in love. She had known better than to speak with him, and he had thought she would be safe from him if he didn't advance on her. He was mistaken. The mere fact that he valued her was enough. After that, he left his rooms when the maids came and turned his face to the corner when his meals were brought. The pages who summon him to the regent's court make their announcements from behind his closed door and are gone by the time he opens it. 
he considers himself lucky still, in a way. The regent is rarely frivolous. Months pass between the regent's request. Years, sometimes. A difficult statute, a rebellious province, a potential usurper, all disappeared before they can cause problems. There have been no wars in his lifetime. He tells himself his body bears the cost of peace, so others are spared. For a while, this serves to console him. The size of the problem varies, but the word is the same. The size of the problem varies, but the cost does not correspond. The cost is always someone or something important to the magician. A gap in his life that only he knows about. He recites them sometimes, the things he has lost. A litany. He begins to resent the regent. Why sacrifice himself for the sake of a person who would not do the same for him, who never remarks on the changes in his appearance? The resentment itself is a curse. There is no risk of the regent disappearing. That is not the price. That is not how this magic works. He takes a new tactic. He loves. He walks through his chambers, flooding himself with love for objects he never cared for before, hoping they'll be taken instead of his fingers. How I adore this chair, he tells himself. This is the finest chair I have ever sat in. Its cushion is the perfect shape. Or how have I never noticed this portrait before? The woman in this portrait is surely the greatest beauty I have ever seen. And how fine an artist to capture her likeness. His reasoning is good, but this is a double-edged sword. He convinces himself of his love for the chair. When it disappears, he feels he will never have a proper place to sit again. When the portrait disappears, he weeps for three losses. The portrait, the woman and the artist, though he doesn't know who they are or if they are yet living. He thinks he may be going mad. And yet, he appears in the regent's court when called. He listens to the description of the regent's latest vexation. He runs his tongue over the places his teeth had been, a new ritual to join the older ones touches the absences on his left hand with the absence on his right, looks around his chambers to catalog the items that remain, utters the word, the cursed word, the word that is more powerful than any other, more demanding, more cruel. He keeps his eyes open, trying as always to see the sleight of hand behind the power. More than anything, he wants to understand how this works, to make it less than magic. He craves that moment where the 
trick behind the thing is revealed to him, where it can be stripped of power and made ordinary. He blinks, only a blink, but when he opens his eyes, his field of vision is altered. He has lost his right eye. The mirror shows a smoothness where it had been, no socket, as if it never existed. He doesn't weep. He tries to love the regent as hard as he can, as hard as he loved his chair, his maid, his eye, his teeth, his fingers, his toes, the memories he knows he has lost. He draws pictures of the regent, masturbates over them, sends love letters that I intercept. The magic isn't fooled. All of this has happened before. I watch his familiar descent. The fingers, the toes, the hand, the arm, all unnecessary to his duty. Though he does weep when he can no longer perform a simple card trick. He loses the memory of how the trick is performed before the last fingers. His hearing is still acute. No matter what else he loses, the magic will never take his ability to hear the regent's problem. It will never take his tongue, which he needs to utter the word, or the remaining teeth necessary to the utterance. If someone were to tell him these things, it would not be a reassurance. For this one, the breaking point is not a person. Not some maid he has fixated upon. Not the memory of a childhood love, nor the slights of hand. For this one, the breaking point is the day he utters the word to disappear another woman, calling up from beyond the wall. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org healthy living. I love my cat, Tiger. And as my best friend, we speak our own language. What's that? You love your litter. He does, because I use Fresh Step Outstretch Litter. It absorbs 50% more waste and odor and requires less changing compared to Fresh Step Multicat. Less changing means more time playing. <laughs> right, Tiger? That's a yes. Find Fresh Step Outstretch Cat Litter in the pet aisle. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates. Let's get back to our story. The names, the regent says. How am I supposed to sleep when she's reciting names under my window? Is it the same woman from years ago? The magician asks. If she can return, perhaps the word is misdirection after all. If she can find her voice again, perhaps nothing is lost for good. 
How should I know? It's a woman with a list and a grievance. The magician tests his mouth, his remaining arm, with its two fingers and thumb. He loses nothing, he thinks, but when he goes to bed that night, he realizes his pillow is gone. It's a little thing. He could request another pillow in the morning, but somehow this matters. He feels sorry for himself. If he thinks about the people, he has disappeared. The women outside the wall, the first woman, the entire population of the northeastern mountain province. He would collapse into dust. I can tell he's done before he can. I'm watching him, as always, and I know as I've known before. He cries himself out on his bed. Why? he asks this time. He has always asked how before. Then, because I know he will never utter the word again, I speak to him directly for the first time. I whisper to him the secret. That it is powered by the unquenched desire to know what powers it, at whatever the cost. Only these children, these hungry youths, can wield it, and we wield them for the brief time they allow us. This one, longer than most. His desire to lay things bare was exceptional, even if he stopped short of where I did. I, no more than a whisper in a willing ear. I wait to see what he will do. Return to the marketplace to join Blind Carol and Greta and the other lesser magicians, the ones we pay to alert us when a new child lingers to watch, ask to stay and teach his successor as his tutor did. He doesn't consider those options, and I remember again that I had once been struck by his lack of cruelty. He leaves through the servant's gate, taking nothing with him. I listen for weeks for him to take up the mourner's litany, as some have done before him, I should have known that wouldn't be his path either. His list of names is too short. If I had to guess, I would say he went looking for the things he lost, the things he banished, the pieces of himself he'd chipped off in service of someone else's problems, the place to which teeth and fingers and problems and provinces and maids and mourners and pillows all disappear. There was a trick, he thinks. There is always a trick.
Whew. <laughs> what a story. Um, there was a trick, the last line says. There is always a trick. I'm not actually sure that there is always a trick. The magician, I mean, his journey was, was one of fulfilling his heart's desire. He wanted to perform magic that wasn't a simple trick. He wanted the, the magic that, that animated the magic. He wanted that energy. And by the way, the idea that, that the, the narrator of the story, who is nothing now but a whisper, he lost everything but his voice. Wow. When I realized that, I thought, okay, this is some really heinous shit. Sarah is really cutting it down to the nitty gritty. Be careful of that which you ask for. Because if it isn't, if it isn't a desire that benefits more than your own vanity, it is likely to backfire on you. <laughs> I remember when I became student body president and I just sort of discovered um, how much I could get away with <laughs> because I had this lofty position and, and, and so there was actually deference from some of the faculty and staff, and I thought, wow, this is cool, right? Um, but looking back on it now, it's like some of the ways that I took advantage um, were not appropriate. And, um, and there's a price to pay. I think that's the, the point of the story. There's always a price. To pay. Um, and we rarely think about it. We rarely are, are cognizant of what is this going to cost me or someone else? And I think we're living in a world where, where we are not clocking the consequence of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. So I guess what I'm saying at the end of the day that there, there really is no trick, right, in life. There are only the choices that we make and the consequences that follow. That's what makes sense to me. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith, the best in the business, y'all. Our fabulous researcher is L.D. Lewis, always happy to have you aboard, my sister. Editing and sound design courtesy of the spectacular skills of Mr. Justin Asher. Our original theme and credits music is by our own Brendan Burns. And thanks to Talon Stradley for his invaluable production support. My great thanks to Sarah Pinsker for allowing me to read her story today. You can find it in her collection entitled Lost Places. 
That's out now from Small Beer Press. You can find out more about it at sarahpensker.com. If you like the podcast, one of the best things you can do to support it is to tell a friend. Just pick an episode and send them the link. Share the short fiction wealth. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Josephine Martirana and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And if you want to find me on the internet, I'm LeVar.Burton on Instagram, at LeVar Burton on Twitter, or the LeVar Burton on TikTok. You can also go to LeVarBurton.com. And hey, if you want to join my book club, go to Fable.co slash LeVar. We're reading together, y'all. Come join us. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. My cat Rachel is the silliest cat I know. One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystal's health monitoring litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystal's health monitoring litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.